We are perishable. Every one of us is perishable. But we don't like to admit that we're perishable, and we do a lot of things to try and keep us from being perishable, right? I mean, just think about all of the aging products that we buy. How much money does America spend on trying not to age? Think about all the diets that are out, trying to make us live longer, just another day. Um, one of my friends just told me that, uh, have you guys heard of blue spots? Mm-hmm. Or blue zones? They're like places in the world where people live longer than anywhere else. And um, the common theme in all of those places is that they eat beans. Every, every one of them eats beans. So some people are eating a lot of beans right now because they're like, we're gonna live longer if we eat more beans. And so, but it, in our day and age, there's always the next diet. There was, first it was Atkins, then South Beach, then Paleo, there's probably something in between there. There's Paleo, there's the Keto diet, there's just a vegetarian diet, don't eat any meat, meat's not good for you. Don't eat any gluten, gluten's a thing. You know, it's like we're, we're trying to get ourselves in shape so we can live a really long time. Um, another example, do you guys know what this is? Anyone know what that is? Notre Dame. Notre Dame, yep, that's Notre Dame. Why was the burning of Notre Dame such a big deal? It had been through so much before. It had been through so much before. So this is a a church that is majestic, right? It was beautiful. And I think that a part of the reason it was such a big deal is because we think of this as being something that's imperishable, right? This iconic thing in America, we don't don't think that it, it it can burn, but it did. It burned, right? Every single thing is imperishable. And I think this is a really good example of us. All of us try and present ourselves like we're Notre Dame, right? Like we have everything together. We don't have any problems. And with the hopes that no one's going to see that actually we could burn, (laughs) that actually there's a lot of issues going on inside. So we all know that we're perishable physically, but we're also perishable spiritually. And even if you don't think that you're perishable spiritually, you are. Even if you don't think you're perishable spiritually, you are. Every one of you is going to die. I have, um, so I've got a clip I want to show you guys that I think illustrates this really well. So why don't you guys just enjoy this. Oh, yeah, well, good riddance, Galoni. 
All right. Uh, so I thought that that clip, I, I watched Toy Story with my boys a couple weeks ago, which actually, um, there's some scary scenes in there, like the, the baby doll head on the, on the arms. That's, that's pretty scary. Um, has anyone not seen Toy Story? Okay, we've all seen, okay, good, we've all seen Toy Story. But I thought this illustrated it perfectly because up to this point in Buzz Lightyear's life, everything Buzz Lightyear had experienced had only confirmed in his mind that he was key to the survival of the universe. And he is a toy, okay? And in the same way, we can, we can deceive ourselves into believing that we are key to something or that we are imperishable. So I, I just want to challenge you. Don't assume that you can't be easily deceived. You really can't. It's easy for us to be, to be deceived. So um, oh, I want to look at a passage in the Bible, Genesis 3, that's going to show um, how we can be deceived. So uh, let's see. If Eight, four. Why don't you guys go to Genesis 3? Or you can just look up here. So I want to look at Genesis 3 and ask, what went wrong here? Why did Adam and Eve sin? That's the reason that we're in this situation that we are. Adam and Eve sin. So why did Adam and Eve sin? So... So I'll read this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Okay, so there is a clear command from God. Do not eat. If you eat, you will die. Okay? She knew that. Adam knew that as well. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of your eyes, eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So there are several things here that are going on that I think happened to put us in this predicament. And I think those things are still happening to us today. It didn't happen then and it's not happening now. It's still happening today. So um, I've got three things, three lies we trick ourselves into believing that we are imperishable. So three lies, three lies we, we believe and trick ourselves into believing we are imperishable. The first one is, we disenchant our world. What I mean by that is we just tell ourselves that we're the masters. We tell ourselves that we can't actually die. And this is what Satan told her in the garden. Satan said, you will not surely die. Right? Up to this point, Adam and Eve, for all we knew, we're going to live forever. So, um, here's how I want to just lay this out. So, um, in 2007, a, a famous uh, psychologist, no, no, philosopher named uh, Charles Taylor came out with a book called The Secular Age. And he, def he found several things that he thought identified our culture today that have never been true before. And um, so, what I mean by 
um, that is, he, he defined these, the things that I'm gonna put in the right-hand category are the disenchanted narrative. We believe that our world is disenchanted. But for all of human existence before the modern age, we've always believed that the world is enchanted. This is what I mean. So first, gosh. So first, spirits exist that affect our lives and are beyond our control. That was in the enchanted narrative, okay? And if you are having a hard time keeping up, you can just listen and look and I can give you the notes later, okay? But first, the enchanted narrative is that spirits exist that affect our lives and are beyond our control. People have always believed that, for all the time. But now we believe spirits are only in fairy tales. There's nothing really going on. Secondly, we exist, this is the enchanted narrative, this is what they used to believe, we exist in a hierarchical cosmos that cannot be fully understood because there are greater powers at work. Things going on beyond our control, people, persons who are greater than us, we cannot understand. Now, nowadays, we exist in a universe that can be fully understood. Through science, humanity can understand everything we need to know in order to be able to survive, to be imperishable. The enchanted narrative would say that we are minor characters in a grand drama being played out through the ages, but our disenchanted narrative would then say we are the main character in a story we are writing ourselves. So do you see that? If, if there's nothing bigger than you in the universe, if there's no spiritual beings in the universe, it makes sense that you're the, that you're the middle of the story. All right, fourth. Uh, the story of the universe is about beings far greater than ourselves getting glory. So people far greater than us getting glory. And we believe the story is about how I'll fulfill the natural desires and longings I feel in me. Again, this is things that have never really been believed before wholeheartedly. All right. We are dependent on external sources for our destiny. This is the enchanted narrative. The disenchanted would say, we are the masters of our own destiny. We are the ones who control it. You guys have all heard that. You could do whatever you want if you put your mind to it. If you do the work, you could do whatever you want. Um, lastly, truth is beyond our own finite understanding. That's what they used to believe. Truth is on our own, beyond our own finite understanding. And the disenchanted narrative would say, truth is what we make it. Do you see how this is similar to Eve in the garden? Satan tells her, you will not surely die. He's saying, God isn't really in control. You are. You're in the driver's seat, and you're not going to die. You are the master of your own destiny right now, and you can eat that fruit, and everything's going to be completely fine. And not only that, but you're going to be able to understand a whole lot more than you understand right now. And if you're a Christian, and you're like, well, I don't buy into that. I mean, certainly that's secular. I think it applies for Christians, too. So for the disenchanted Christian, it's this. If the disenchanted narrative is that spirits are only in fairy tales, for a disenchanted Christian, it's that God is not a real person but an idea. And some of you, your prayer life reflects this. You think of God as a code of ethic as opposed to an actual person you're going to interact with someday. Or, we, the second one, we exist in a universe that, cannot be, or that can be fully understood. And for the disenchanted Christian, pursuing God equals pursuing knowledge and expertise in the Christian life. I can master this. I can do this thing well. People will look at me and think, I am a good Christian. Third, we are the main characters in the story we're writing ourselves. A disenchanted Christian would say, the greatest truth in the Bible is that Jesus loves me. Which is a great truth. But when the focus in my relationship with the Lord is how he loves me, loves me. Me. I'm the center of it. That's, that's different. That's a disenchanted Christian. Disenchanted narrative would say, the story is about how I'll fulfill the natural desires and longings I feel in me. 
a disenchanted Christian would say, Jesus is a means to my greatest good, which is fulfilling my deepest longings. So if I long for something, it's probably a good thing, right? It's probably good because I long for it. The disenchanted narrative that we are the masters of our own destiny, a disenchanted Christian would say, say, would say, oh my gosh, Jesus plans, oh boy. Okay, Jesus' plan for my life coincides with the desires I have. So we're the master of our own destiny, and when we think about the desires that we have in our heart, we just automatically assume that if I have a desire in my heart, it must align with what Jesus wants me to do. And lastly, truth is what we make it. The disenchanted Christian would say, if the Bible says something that doesn't feel completely right to me, then it must mean something different. Because what I feel must be right. Do you see that? So the disenchanted Christian... Who is the center of authority there? They are. They're deciding their emotions, their thoughts, their feelings. They're deciding what's real and what's not real. So we disenchant our world. But here's the truth. The truth is the world is enchanted. Like Harry Potter spellbinding enchanted. Magical things are going on every single day. Think about this. God created all things. God is real, and he created everything. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And right now, he is literally speaking everything into existence. The Bible says, Hebrews 1.2, he says, He upholds the universe, the universe, by the word of his power. He speaks all things into existence. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the word, and the word, the word, logos, was with God and the word was God. The word being spoken. He speaks all of creation. Right now, you are being spoken into existence by God. The world is incredibly enchanted. Secondly, he has always been. I remember when I was five, I was sitting in a Sunday school class and our Sunday school teacher said, did you guys know that Jesus has always existed? God has always existed. And as a kid, I was like, I mean, it was like, how can you, like, I just kept trying to, like, go further back in my mind, like, you know, to the beginning, but it's like, you can't go to the beginning, because God's always existed. Psalm 92 says, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting, from eternity past, to eternity future, you are God. You have always existed. God has always existed. And you can't even wrap your mind around that. And you never will. The world is enchanted. It's filled with spiritual beings that are far larger than you. Third, he is content. He has no needs. So the first time that he really explains this to people is he reveals this to Moses at the burning bush. If you guys aren't familiar with that story, it's in Exodus. And Moses says, if I come to the people of Israel, he's going to try and save them from Egypt. He says, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what's his name? What shall I say to them? And this is what God says to him. He says, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. What that means is literally, I am self-existent. I do not need anything. I exist among myself. We need air. We need water. We need food. We need shelter. We need community. There's so many things that we need 
to, in order to survive. And God has no needs. In Psalm 50, 12, it says, he says, If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world in its fullness are mine. If you guys want to meditate on this more, go to Psalm 50. The whole thing is about this. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world in its fullness are mine. He has no needs. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need you to honor him. He doesn't need your service. He doesn't need you to love him. He has always existed, and he's completely self-sufficient. So, that's three. Number four. He is the purpose of creation. This is a zinger. It seems selfish. It seems a little selfish. Why would God be the center of all creation? Well, if you are the best thing in all creation, it makes sense that you would be the purpose of all creation. And he wasn't created, but he is the best. So he says in Isaiah 48, 11, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another. He says that my glory, I will not give to another. He can't. It would be dishonest to himself because he's the most glorious being in the universe. He can't do it. And then in Psalm 23, this is a really precious psalm to me. It's beautiful, especially if you're suffering. This is beautiful. And one of the things he says in this psalm, one of the things that is comforting to David in the valley is that you lead me in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. And those paths of righteousness, you guys have heard this before. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. The valley of the shadow of death is a path of righteousness that God was leading David through. And he said it was for your sake, for your name's sake, you do this. And it's good. That's a good thing that God is doing that. Fifth, and this is the last one on this point. Fifth, he is a mystery. So he says in Isaiah 55, verse 8, My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. So when you think of God and you think what's going on in your life doesn't make sense to you, it's easy to try and put God into a box with your own understanding and say, well, this is how I think about it, and therefore this must be bad, or, or God must not be good. But his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And so... He's a mystery. You're not going to be able to ever understand him. If you really want to understand this, or if you want to dive more into this, look at the book of Job. Job suffers a lot, and God never gives him the answer to why he suffers. Because he doesn't need to, because he's God. So, the truth is the world is enchanted, and the reason the world is enchanted is because God is. That's why. All right. Secondly, we deify ourselves. You guys know what deify means? Deify comes from the word deity. It means to make someone a god. So we make ourselves gods. So back to Genesis 3. So you see in the garden, it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be a desire to make one wise, she took for it. She took from it. So three things. One, she saw the necessity. She saw it was good for food. Two, she saw that it was going to fill her with pleasure. It was a delight to the eyes. And three, she thought it, saw that it was going to make her wise. So what did she do? She took it. And by doing so, she was saying she's God. She wanted to replace God completely because she wanted to be wise like God. She didn't want God. She wanted what God had so that she could do it herself. And Adam did the exact same thing that she did. We deify ourselves. Um, a couple of verses that really help with this. Um, 
Jeremiah 2, 12 and 13. He says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So this is how this plays out. So God is saying, I uh, have no needs, I'm all sufficient, and I am everything that you need. And I'm offering you life. And what we've said is, eh, we don't want that. And we think we can find what you have over in this pit over here. We're going to dig a pit for ourselves and see if we can get some water. And, and he's saying it's a broken sister. It doesn't really work. Now, some of you guys don't think that this is true of you. Some of you guys don't think that you really struggle with sin. And this really struck me when I was um, a freshman. I'll, I'll tell that story in a minute. But in Jeremiah 17, 9, he says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So some of you guys in this room are Christians, and you would say that you've been a Christian your entire life. Or at the least, you've grown up in a Christian home your entire life. And I did too. I am a pastor's son. So um, my dad has been a pastor for 20 years. And I thought I was a Christian at a really young age. Um, I think that I became a Christian when I was 11. But um, I often found myself throughout junior high and high school wanting to fit in and not fitting in. And out of my insecurity, it was kind of like, a, well, if I can't join you, then I'm going to judge you and let you know that I'm better than you. So I felt, I felt a superiority to, to people. I would go to a Christian camp, and I was like the guy. It's like I knew all the Bible verses. You know, it's like I knew everything. And um, I felt really cool for one week out of the year. You know, um, really looked forward to that time. Um, it's really sad. So um, when I came into college, I went to Bethel University because I was like, this is a perpetual camp. You know, <laughs> I'm going to go to a university that literally does worship every Sunday night for an hour, just like my camp did back home. So um, I, went to, I went to Bethel, and I thought I was going to be the next Billy Graham. Does anyone know what Billy Graham is? Okay, so Billy Graham was a televangelist and just an evangelist in um, 20th century I mean, literally, the count is like probably millions of people came to know Christ because of Billy Graham. My grandfather came to know Christ because he was in a hotel room drinking, and he watched a Billy Graham episode, and he became sober and accepted Christ. It's like so many people have become Christians because of Billy Graham. And I thought, that was me. <laughs> I, was, I was next. And uh, coming into college, I thought, I know the Bible really well. I know the gospel. I had shared the gospel. I grew up in a small high school. I had a, there was about 100 students in my high school. I had shared the gospel with probably about 50 of them by the time that I graduated. So I thought, I am a big deal. Do you know who I am? I'm Zach Simmons. And I'm going to this video. So I got rocked my freshman year because I started hanging out with a guy named Andrew Knight, who some of you guys know. And Andrew took me on a trip to Michigan. He was, he was speaking at a retreat there. And he said... Um, in one of his talks at that retreat, he said, Zach, if you don't think you're the most sinful person that you know, then you don't understand the gospel. And if you're a Christian tonight, and you've always run up Christian, I want to challenge with you with that. Do you think you're the most sinful person that you know? Because the reality is, is that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And the only one who can understand it, what Jeremiah 17.10 says, is I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind and see every way that a man goes. Only the Lord can. You cannot understand the wickedness, the deceitfulness of your own heart. 
and the ways that you deceive yourselves into believing that you love the Lord and in reality you love yourself. And here's how it played out for me, my freshman year. So a guy named Jesse Nelson wanted to lead a Bible study in my freshman dorm. So this was in December, it was during finals week, and I was like, and so he wanted to lead it over J-term, you know, January, that's when we have J-term. And so I was like, well, that's great, let's lead it together. When can we start praying, preparing for it? And he was like, no, I just want you to be a participant in it. Like, <laughs> and I was so mad. Um, so I was, in my mind, I was kind of like, do you know who I am? I was like, listen, I was like, I know the Bible better than you. I know that I know the Bible better than you. I think you became a Christian when you were in college. I've been a Christian since I was 11, okay? We're on the same level, at least on the same level. How dare you think that you can lead a Bible study over me as if you're better than me? And so I walked away fuming, and he sent a text to me. Of course, a text. That's what it was, a text. And... Um, the text said, if you cannot lead without the title, then you need to check your pride. And there's a lot of things going on in my freshman year. You know, Andrew was telling me that I was sinful. And um, it, I was going to respond and be like, yeah, well, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, same back, you know. Um, I back at you. But uh, it just, it struck me in that moment that I like to use Jesus as a way to make myself look good. The reason it was so hard for me is because I wanted glory. And as a Christian, the way that I got glory my whole life, the way that I got acceptance, the way that I got people to like me, the way that I got to get what I wanted to get was by knowing a lot about the Bible. So I like to use Jesus as a way to make myself look good. And up to that moment, I had been reading the Bible for 10 years. And I didn't realize it until that moment that it was such a big deal that I like to use Jesus as a way to make myself look good. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. You can't understand it. But here's the truth. The truth is that he is God. We are not God. He is God. And because his godness remains regardless of what happens with us, his wrath remains. Because his godness remains, his wrath remains. So Emma shared last night, Romans 6.23, which says, for the wages of sin is death. Do you hear that? The wages of sin is death. So when you sin, the first time you sin, what you deserve then is death. And God's wrath on you remains because he is just and he cannot handle, he cannot handle imperfection especially when it slanders his name. And that's what we did. We deified ourselves. We don't want him. We don't want God. We want ourselves to be God. But because he's God, because his godness remains, his mercy also remains. He is God. He does not need you. He is in no need for you to glorify him. Therefore, his mercy is great. Like 1 Peter says, according to his great mercy. Because he has no needs, his mercy is great. So this is, I love this verse because I think this pairs really, really well with Jeremiah. You know, Jeremiah says, They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed up cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. John 7, 37 and 38 says, um, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Do you see that? Do you see the parallel there? This is a thousand years afterwards, and God has not given up on people. What? That's insane. We deserve to be, to die. We deserve to have his wrath poured out on us. And a thousand years after Jeremiah wrote that, he's saying, come to me and I'll have living waters flow out of your heart. His mercy remains. All right, lastly, we distrust his goodness. So um, as, as Eve was with the serpent, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What is the serpent saying here? Think about it. What he is saying is that God doesn't have your best in mind. He's scared. He doesn't want you to be like him. Because if you eat of that tree, you're going to be like God. So do it. God doesn't have your best in mind. You can't trust him. That's what he's saying. We distrust God's goodness. So, for you guys, this has played out in a lot of different ways. I think every one of you guys probably have wounds from your past, from things people have said to you, and you have taken that and said, this, is, this must be the way that God thinks about me. God can't be good because of an abusive parent or a manipulative ex-boyfriend or ex-girlfriend or current boyfriend or girlfriend or... Um, parents who are distant and don't really care about you or maybe you don't have parents there's so many things there's so many different wounds that could be going in this room and it's so easy for us to then say God therefore can't be good but do you see what we're doing there when you say that God therefore can't be good you're saying I know I have the authority in my mind to be able to say whether God is good or not I understand the universe to be able to say that God is not good. That doesn't make any sense because God is beyond us. He's completely beyond us. And what I want to say to you guys tonight is God is good. The truth is that he is good. So here's an example. Um, you guys have seen William and Sullivan around Project, my two sons. And um, I love them so much. I delight in my sons so much. I don't know if there's a greater joy that I've experienced in my life than being a father to, to those two boys. And um, some nights when they're going to bed, I will look at them. I'll, I'll go to each one of them and I'll look at them in the eyes and I'll say, I love that you love to wrestle. And I love that you jumped off that step today. Sometimes Sullivan goes in our backyard. And, I mean, he's little, okay, so this is a big deal. He jumps off the step and I'm like, that is amazing, you know? Um, <laughs> And, and I'll say, you know, um, I loved reading that book to, um, with you today. And um, with William, I, I say, I love how good of a memory you have. I love that you remember your papa and going to Wendy's with him a year ago. And with Sullivan, I say, I love how independent you are and how you want to do everything. And, um, and usually one of them will say, they'll, they'll smile and they'll say, say it again. <laughs> again, say it again. And the reason that I like to do that is because I love my boys. 
they're not giving me anything other than just sheer delight because they are who they are. Those aren't things that make me love them. Those are just things I love about them. They, they are a delight to me, an absolute delight. And now think about this. This is the crazy thing. I'm imperfect and I'm sinful. Did you know that giving this talk, uh, Emma and I got into a fight two weeks ago about this talk and um, about she's going to give a talk next week and we wanted to use the same illustration. And I was upset. And the reason I was upset was because I want you guys to think I'm a good speaker. I want my talk to pack a punch. <laughs> because I want to use God as a way to make myself look good. The same thing I was dealing with when I was a freshman, I'm still dealing with now. I'm still sinful. So sinful. And if I, who am an imperfect father, love my children and delight in them, how much more does God in heaven delight in you simply because he does? He is good because he is good. Not because of anything that you could give him, ever. He is good simply because he is good. If I have an ounce of goodness in me, where does that goodness come from if it doesn't come from God? He is good. He's very, very good. So, he became perishable so that we could become imperishable. And this is where I want to land tonight. He became perishable so that we could become imperishable. So Adam and Eve, Satan told them in the garden, you need to worry about this thing, about the whole death thing, because God's lying to you. He's not telling the truth. You need to make it up on your own. You need to figure stuff out. You need to have strategies to be able to deal with this thing. And we do the exact same thing. We live in a disenchanted culture to try and convince ourselves that we're imperishable we deify ourselves, build ourselves up to believe we're imperishable, and we distrust God's goodness. We believe that we know what's better for ourselves than, than what God does. But this is why we can trust in him, because he became perishable so that we could become imperishable. So 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Emma said this beautifully yesterday. All the things on the man's side, God took on himself. And all the things on God's side were placed onto us. It's like a blanket over us. His righteousness is like a blanket over us. So God's wrath, it's not like God's wrath is coming down and, and Jesus is just barely shielding us from it. It's when, when Jesus died on the cross and those who accept him, it completely diverts the path. So you don't have to worry about it anymore. God and his goodness did not need you from everlasting to everlasting. And what he decided to do was love you just because he loves you. And how we know he is good, how we know that he loved us, is he became perishable. He was willing to die an intense, excruciating death so that we would not have to experience that, so that we could have life. We get the imperishable we don't get the perishable anymore. We get the imperishable. This is the best news in the world. There's no other religion that preaches this. Every other religion in the world is going to say, here is the pillars that you need to follow. Here, are, here is the path that you need to follow. Here are the different layers in Hinduism that you need to get to in order to, in reincarnation, to be able to get to moksha. 
Nobody preaches that you don't have to do anything in order to get it. Because nobody else gets that God has no needs. He has no needs. He doesn't need you. He loves you just because he loves you. That's who God is. You're sinful. You're incredibly deceived. You deceive yourself every single day. I deceive myself every single day. I like to use the God of the universe to make myself look good. And yet Jesus said, come to me, whoever, whoever, anyone, come to me. And I will make a fountain of living water flow out of your heart for all of eternity. That's the God that we serve. So good. So 1 Peter 3, Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's so happy. Peter is so happy. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? According to his great mercy. It was great mercy because it was great sin. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. So we are born into something that's imperishable, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. So let me, um, this is an application. If you just want to think about application, I'm going to put this down, and then I've got some reflection questions for you guys to consider. So God loves you, Simply because he loves you. There's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing on your end that makes him love you more or makes him love you less. He loves you simply because he loves you. And in Christ, we obtain an imperishable inheritance. He became perishable so that we could obtain the imperishable, so that we could become imperishable. So, why then hide your perishability? Going back to the Notre Dame, some of you guys work really, really hard to make yourselves look good. I do this. I am consumed with wanting to be successful in my life. You try really, really hard. You want to look like the Notre Dame, so you have everything set in place perfectly. And when everyone looks at you, they're going to see this perfect picture of what a human being should be. And yet you know on the inside, there's so much imperfection, and it produces so much anxiety within you. Because you know, deep down, you'll never be good enough. You'll never be good enough. But Christ has... Through Christ, we obtain an imperishable inheritance. And so, what I'm asking you to do tonight is be perishable. Be honest about your sin. Be honest that you don't have it all together. May this summer begin a new trajectory in your life where what you have done in your life does not define who you are. What defines who you are is that God loves you simply because he loves you.